bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. Erica, happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. It's uh, been quite a week here in Ottawa. Um, the weather's been fucking nuts. It's crazy. It was like 11 yesterday, and now it, like, it's minus 17. With the wind chill, like minus 30. Yeah. Which before that, it was like a deep freeze where it was like a wind chill of minus 40. Yeah. Um, so we had a flash freeze yesterday. Everything went to shit. I drove in it. It was Did awful. you really? Yeah. Well, I had to teach my spin class last night. Do you drive? Uh, yeah. I don't own a car. I have oh, a car, car a, sharing. Car, car share? Yeah. yeah. A ride share? Yeah. Or car share. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm getting it. Okay. Yeah. It okay. was, uh, brutal. Especially coming from Vancouver, where we don't get winter, really. So, like, I've had to learn to drive in the snow living in Ottawa. And then, like, my first year here, uh, my friend drove me somewhere, and we had to, like, scrape a car off. I was like, I don't know that I've ever scraped a car off. Really? Yeah. I forgot it did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, if you're not scraping a car off, like seven months of the year then what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) um other other than that for me it was a quiet week i had my birthday yes happy birthday thank you um have a birthday party tonight yes i will be attending um i picked up a giant cake today did you i they wanted to like open it and show me and i based on my order and i was like you know what it's wrapped up i like it's just just leave it she's like but i want to sh-. i was like i trust that it is what i said it, i wanted we're good then i had to carry it out in like minus 30 and it was oh, it was oh brutal my gosh, had to brutal. park around the corner because there's no street parking outside oh right because they have to close it off for for snow clearing yeah oh god i yeah. hate that yeah i hate that yeah but i have to say ottawa is They've got great snow clearing. Listen, there's no snow clearing like Ottawa. I will Ugh. I will say this for Ottawa. Ottawa can clear snow in like uh in a heartbeat. I was in Calgary and I'm like, why is this not happening? Yes, I fully agree. Like the city why? of Ottawa is so good. And like to be fair, all they also spend all their money on snow clearing. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um also this week was my first Friday, um, joining the 10 o'clock talk on News 1310. Yes. As their regular 10 a.m. Friday panelist. So that's pretty fun. That's awesome. How was that? It was good. Um, uh, Having been on the show, subbing in for someone else previously, um, I didn't get any questions about government procurement. Nice. Particularly military procurement, which I know nothing about and just generally don't have opinions on. Yeah, me neither. So I was when that I got received that question like a few months ago, I was just like, I don't know anything about this. So I, I have nothing to say. <laughs> well, what were the topics? Um, yesterday we talked about 
um, whether the Ottawa senator or whether the city of Ottawa should help subsidize the Ottawa senators in their move to La Breton Flats. Okay. Yeah. Um, we also talked about the nudist um, pool party happening in Calgary that got canceled. Well, now. Um, um, I was just in Calgary. Where was my invite? <laughs> no. Usually the people who want to be at a nudist function are not the people you want to see nude. That's true. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. A couple other things. Nothing super exciting. Ooh. But uh, how was your week? <laughs> it's been trial and error. Oh. Um, and hella rewarding at the same time. Uh-huh. So it's been hard, but rewarding. So, um, so this week I joined Beyond Canada 2020 as one of their stakeholders mm. and they're looking into, um, creating policy in, a f- from a feminist lens. Okay. So, um, it's part of their Beyond T- Canada 2020 initiative put on by the prime minister, um, supported by Privy Council office, mm-hmm in the government of canada and basically they're it's like, beyond canada 150 right did i say 2020 yeah shoot sorry that was the last government <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's beyond canada 150 and if you actually like that's the name of the website if you want to go um so basically it's looking at policy from an intersectional lens mm-hmm. And so I got to lend my opinions and like my analyses on such topics. You have no shortage of opinions. I have none at all, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) But I, I, I am beginning to see why policies that are made to benefit marginalized communities are not actually developed by marginalized communities like i'm starting to see how the system or the or the processes in the system Mm -hmm. how i'm not saying like i'm not saying it forcibly keeps people out right oh it does let's be honest but (laughs) but at but that's not where i'm coming from where i'm coming from is i see all the oversights i see why you end up with a policy that's for somebody else, but by the ruling elite, so to yeah. speak. Because if you really think about it, the people, the decision makers are so far removed from the mm-hmm. people that they're trying to reach. And since they're not brought into the consultation process, usually, because, sorry, I like these, you have a group of policy analysts who are trying to reach out to different people. And if you don't know who to reach out to, or if you don't get passed on to somebody to reach out to who's from that community, then they get lost. Well, especially when you kind of just go back to the same players all the time. Right. Um, You know, there are all sorts of different stakeholder groups popping up and they might be small, but they might be led or um, have a member that is, you know, an expert in a field. Yeah. And if you're not tapping into these, if you're not tapped into um, these emerging communities yeah, um, and making sure you're staying on top of the latest um, activism, I guess, yeah, then you're definitely excluding parts 
of those communities. So I feel like part of I feel like part of my job is to open that up. Yes. I feel like that is partially yeah, I bring a completely different perspective, I can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you know, um there were different people from like different communities and different perspectives, so I give them credit for for reaching out to a diverse group of people. They're trying. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that sure. way. Um but I feel like okay, so if I'm tapped in then i need to tap like get other people on board yeah and snowball effect yeah exactly so i feel like that's partially my reason for being (laughs) right now yeah and like you have the added benefit of being able to work between the two different spaces right right see that's the thing i'm like i'm the connector right i'm the bridge like i've worked and existed and and um in that system but i also have that that activist sort of tapping into those roots too Mm -hmm. so i feel like um that's my job is to bring more people and i know somebody's gonna be like the system must die look it's what we have right now like if you really i'm here about getting things done and i feel like you know uh, until we find something like I don't know. I'm just saying that we're here. We're in this system. It's not going anywhere. So we have to sort of, we have to work with it. But even if you get rid of the system, a new system is just going to take its place, which may or may not be better. Well, nobody talks about the system that would take its place. Exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. And so you're left with this chaos and, and a vacuum of power and we all know what happens when there's a vacuum of power yep history has taught us that yeah so structures are in place for a reason yeah and it's learning how to create change within those structures right but the people i also want to add that the that the people outside of those structures also inform should have a way to inform the structure yes so that's mainly my purpose right i guess cool yeah very interesting yeah and I was out of a mobile phone for connectivity for about three days because <laughs> Rogers screwed up my mobile. But anyway, do you, like, do you know? Do you know I feel like this is Festivus and we're at the airing of the grievances. It, I, I can't even. <laughs> Rogers, get your stuff together. Okay. Wow. Um, I would just like to point out, because you said stuff instead of shit, mm-hmm. that I was filmed an Instagram story the other day. And for whatever reason, I said baloney. I instead of bullshit. Yeah, and I was like, "This is such baloney." <laughs> <laughs> and then like poppycocks. And, <laughs> and then I was just like, watching what? it back, and I was like, "What, what? the fuck was that?" Where did that come from? And I was like, eh, publish. <laughs> oh, by the way, so I didn't have my computer last night last night because I like rely on my laptop so much. Like anyway, so I didn't have it last night. So this is the funny thing. I started watching Instagram stories and I'm like, fuck, this is like the best reality show. <laughs> Yo, have you guys gotta check out Official Bonnet Chronicles? It is hilarious. Tammy Roman, who was like on the real world, 
like the original real world, like the first real world. Wow. Yeah. And then she was on Basketball Wives. And so she's basically reality, like a reality royalty in, in for a certain generation, right? She has on her Instagram, and it's not her Instagram, but but official Bonnet Chronicles. It is hilarious where she just talks shit. She just talks about shit. Just talks. And like she's like, why is it? When there are motherfuckers in line, they have to, they, I was, they have to like, and then she goes on with her story and it is so funny. I, I suggest it. I recommend, um, Instagram <laughs> and, and I, now I'm thinking, and I'm sitting there for like an hour and I'm watching all these Instagram and I'm like, fuck, I'm basically watching TV. This is my new TV. <laughs> I've bypassed YouTube apparently and gone into Instagram. I also watch Snapchat stories, which are if you go on Snapchat and you fall like you have a subscription, like you subscribe to certain places, like certain, I guess, accounts, you get all these really cool stories. I'm huh. like, I'm like really digital this week. So there. Huh. I know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, before we get into it, just a reminder to become a patron of the podcast uh, that will get you, you know, our special newsletter, advanced access to bonus podcasts, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. And just a quick shout out to Sarp and Jennifer, our newest patrons. Hey, thanks for supporting Welcome us. Welcome to the bad and bitchy crew. <laughs> I feel like that needed to be said. Yes. And, uh, stay tuned because we are getting into our co-host, um, interviews and if you are a patron you get to vote to see who is going to become our next co-host that's right so stay tuned for more details get your patreon on <laughs> i know So let's get into it. Yes, let's do that. This week in feminism, uh, Erica, I, I'm sure you saw, but uh, Serena Williams, the goat, mm-hmm. was on the cover of Vogue again. Yes. But this time, she was on the cover with her new baby. Alexis. Alexis Olympia Ohanian Jr. Um, the profile itself was good. It's worth reading. I love that picture on the cover though like she looks equally strong and maternal i know and i think that's like an image you don't see a lot of yes i mean particularly for black women yes um some yeah i think motherhood they tend to like make it into like a femininity thing yeah 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 which like is a whole other that's a that's another we're not gonna unpack here (laughs) um but what we did want to talk about was kind of a call back to what we talked about in our last episode, mm-hmm. back in bitchy. So if you haven't listened for whatever reason, turn this off right now and go download last week's episode, episode 24. First episode of season two. Season two. Um, and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what happens in this profile is Serena tells the story of delivering her child, the days that followed, and how she risked dying. Um, after an emergency C-section, Williams encountered what is oft- an often fatal complication, mm-hmm. blood clots. Right. And so Serena has a history of blood clots. 
So uh, a quote from the profile reads, The next day, while recovering in the hospital, Serena suddenly fell short of breath. Because of her history with blood clots and because she was off her daily anticoagulant regimen due to the recent surgery from giving birth, uh, she immediately assumed that she was having another pulmonary embolism. She walked out of the hospital room so her mother wouldn't worry and told the nearest nurse, between gasps, that she needed a CT scan with a contrast IV with contrast ugh, that she needed a CT scan with contrast and IV hairpin, which is a blood thinner, right away. The nurse thought the pain medication might be making her confused, but Serena insisted and soon enough a doctor was performing an ultrasound on her legs. And she was just like a Doppler. I told you I need a CT scan and a hairpin drip. The ultrasound revealed nothing. And uh, so they sent her for the CT. And sure enough, several small blood clots had settled in her lungs. And minute li minutes later, she was on the drip. So uh, Serena became one of the estimated 150,000 women in America to experience serious illness or near-death experience around pregnancy every year. But because of her history of blood clots, this made her aware of the symptoms and she was able to save her own life. Unfortunately, between 700 and 1,200 American women every year don't live to describe the experience of giving birth. And as we talked about last week, black women are three times more likely to die or suffer serious illness from pregnancy-related causes than white women, with at least 40 deaths per 100,000 people or 100,000 live births on average. And this is compared to... 14 per 100,000 live births for white mothers. And according to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, at least 46% of maternal deaths among African-American women could be prevented versus 33% for white women, which points to a systematic dismissal of symptoms and patient complaints and less attention paid overall. I concur. <laughs> So let me tell you a story. So about um, four years ago, I had emergency surgery. Mm -hmm. I wasn't pregnant. So this is not like a maternal type of story, but um, mainly because uh, my then family doctor, when I complained to her about um, stomach issues, um, did basically told me that I was lactose intolerant when I really had a tumor. Oh God. She did no, she did zero. And this was like, this was like an abnormally large growth. Mm -hmm. So it, um, so it was noticeable. Right. And she just dismissed, she's, she, she said, well, you know, you're of African descent, so you're probably just lactose intolerant. And you're like, but it's like growing out of me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what lactose intolerance looks like. Yeah. So she did zero x-rays, zero checking, zero. And um, it only it only ended up that I was in so much pain that I had to go through to the emergency room. And, you know, I remember one of the x-ray technicians is like, why didn't you know? I'm like, isn't that your fucking job? Yeah. And so you get so it's like you're re victimized at the point where at the healthcare center. Yeah. And so um and you always have to explain yourself. 
And so I I understand how it happened. Like it was so bad that my um my like once I got to the specialist, he was great. Mm-hmm. Um but basically I almost lost my like uterus because so of crazy. that misdiagnosed based on her presumption of my race. Well, yeah, and like there's so many layers to this. It's like there's the race issue. There's the fact that, oh, women couldn't possibly be in tune enough with their bodies and know when things are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably generally talking to a male doctor. Yeah. Like This was a white woman. Well, yeah. There you go. When you're talking to your opposite, they're probably going to be a little bit more skeptical because how would you know? They're the professional. Yeah, exactly. And so... Um, like, luckily, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I was... And so when I'm... Like, later, I'll talk about how I'm a I'm a practicing Catholic. That's one of the reasons. Right. Um, I... My, my specialist... My... The specialist also thought that I would... Um, that it would restrict the blood flow to my heart and that I could die. Jeez. Yeah. So when I read about this, and like, so when Serena was like, I need this, this, I get that. Yeah. I get that because basically the medical professionals will make assumptions based on your race, not understanding your medical history or even your origins or anything like that. And women especially um, are not believed. We're, we're, we yeah. are... It's that going back to that hysterical woman trope. Yes. And how women are irrational, so they're never to be believed when they say certain things. And that has not changed in the medical community much. And this is Canada, so imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, And like, especially for someone like Serena Williams, who is an athlete. Has power and agency. Has power and agency, but she also, like, athletes generally are very in tune with their bodies. Mm -hmm. They know when something's wrong. And they are surrounded by professionals who are nutritionists, who are strength, who they can get any sort of care that they want Mm -hmm. because they have access and they can afford it. Exactly. And to just dismiss, like, which... She's not just going to be like, oh, like, I need a CT scan because I want to spend $12,000 on a CT scan. Like, how would she know about a heparin drip? Exactly. If if that wasn't administered to her before. Yeah. Like, she's using the right words. It's not like she's... um, She's not like, I need morphine right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, She's not... uh, She doesn't have, like, Munchausen's or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I used to to watch a lot of house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was always one they used. Yeah. House. <laughs> yeah. So if you're uh in the medical field, check your privilege. Yeah, because again, like it was assumptions based on race. Her no, it was an assumption based on her understanding of race. Right. And she never bothered to check my family history. So race so, so fucking lazy overtook her analysis instead of me. 
where race is just one of the factors. Sure. Right? Yeah. So anyway, I'm okay now. <laughs> well, great. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so our next topic is something that's been quietly under the radar this week in Canada. I've seen it. Uh, Jesse Brown talked about it on Candle and Shortcuts this week. Uh, and Erica has now included it in our This Week in Feminism, is that can lit is a cesspool of misogyny. Apparently, it's a big cesspool without um, without a pump. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, So, yeah, yeah, take us through this. I don't... Okay, so this came across... This was posted in one of the groups, like... um, so I belong to a couple of Facebook groups. One is um, for girls. Well, young women, teens to 20s. So um, this was posted in that group. And I started reading it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So basically, it's a. this is, I would say, an essay by a dude who is who went to Concordia. And Concordia apparently has it, has had its own sexual harassment allegations yes they're they're pretty deep in a whole bunch of different allegations yes and um he's involved in canadian literature he what he teaches now he was published he this is not like a just a dude who just you know hasn't really done anything and got tenured or something so what he did was he recounted his experiences within the Canadian literature community, hence Canlet. And he says, In my 14-year association with Concordia and Canlet, I've been witness to and made aware of innumerable instances of unwanted affection, groping, inappropriate remarks, and propositions. When rejected by women, men in positions of power would engage in whisper campaigns, denigrating and degrading those who had rejected him. I sat with these men, called them friends, allowed their actions through my inaction. Both Concordia and Canlet have fostered inappropriate behaviors and environments that have permeated throughout the community. The construct that protects abusive mentor-mentee, professor-student, established aspiring artist relationships is a template for how Canlet protects its monsters from public indictment. The professors, many further protected by tenure, abuse the power of their position in both academia and literature. A professor slash writer harasses a student. The student remains silent because they need the grade or letter of recommendation or the internship at the prof's publisher. The publisher enables the professor or writer by continuing to publish them despite the stories of their behavior circulating widely, and in doing so legitimizes their agency and professorship and often engages in those behaviors themselves. The aspiring writer is silent because they want to be published or need a job or are simply afraid, as victims tend to be. Even if a student comes forward, nothing is done. English and creative writing departments across Canada and the U.S. knowingly cultivate environments that are criminally unsafe for young women and aspiring writers. An example of this was in 2016 at UBC. Now, today, Margaret Atwood um, has some sort of globe op-ed about her role in this. 
<laughs> Margaret Atwood. Yes, that Margaret Atwood. Yes, The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood. Okay. I just want you to keep that in mind. The one that was shouted out at the Golden Globes? I'm sure. Okay. Professor Stephen Galloway in tw- 2016, who had accusations against him, never made public by the university, included sexual assault, sexual harassment, and other inappropriate behaviors such as bullying. Notable authors included Joyce Joseph Boyden, yes, that Joseph Boyden, and Margaret Atwood, amongst, I think there were about at least 40 others, 30 or 40 others, wrote an open letter to the UBC administration to plead for due process for Galloway, claiming he, quote, has been denied the right to speak publicly while his case is being grieved. So Stephen Galloway is going through a grievance proce- process with the university uh, due to these multiple allegations. So that's the background. The university's willingness to allow the suspicions it has created to continue to circulate is surprising and appears to be contrary to the principles of fairness and justice that should guide any distinguished academic institution. Justice, however, requires due process and fair treatment to all, which the university appears to have denied Professor Galloway. That's what they wrote. That's the letter they all signed. And, um, yeah, that was their position. The article states that positions of power in Canlet are abused in the same way that Harvey, the Harvey Weinsteins, Kevin Spacey's, Dustin Hoffman's, and Louis C.K.'s did to subjugate aspiring artists to their every whim. And just as Hollywood protected them, so do too do the presses, publishing houses, journalists, and English departments that make up CanLit. And I would have to say we have yet to see the Me Too movement reach these places. You mean like CanLit or the the like publishing in general? Probably Canada in general. I mean Canada in general it hasn't happened at all. And I've asked this many times. When is Canada's reckoning coming? Yep. Yep. But this is just an, I I I really like he does this mea culpa. And um, he said that he, too, participated in that, not by harassing or abusing people, but staying silent. And, you know, later on, we're going to talk about the men of the Golden Globes, Um, but how his silence really protected the abusers. And I think that that is a really, really big point to make, that silence does not mean you're opting out. Silence means translates into the protection of those people who abuse other people, who harass other people, who are bullying even. It's complicity. It's complicity. And complicity is what creates that agency. Yeah. It's part of it. Because the longer you're silent, the less we know about your own views on the subject, which means we then assume, rightly or wrongly, that you support this. And the peop- the power players assume that you are with this and too. And con- condoning and, it. And that you condone it so they can carry on to do the same thing. I also want to point out too that this is not just Hollywood. 
even in because I, I know that a lot of people like to pretend that it's some Hollywood cesspool or that it only happens in America or that it only happens in politics or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What this states is that this behavior permeates every industry because we allow it to happen because we stay silent yeah. and we don't support those who step out of the out of the dark into the light and tell their story. It's it's partially all of our fault. That was very Olivia Pope of you. Thank you. Um, I will say like I'm, it's not clear to me because I don't know much about the Galloway, the Professor Galloway case. Mm hmm. Are they were they saying that he should be able to defend himself publicly during the grievance process? I what they were saying was that he, they basically he's being badly branded because he's he's muzzled. Yeah, partially because he's muzzled and that justice has not been done because he hasn't been able to defend himself, I guess, defend himself. But that's that's not due process. Due process is the process by which like a decision is made. Yeah. And due process is the grievance process. Exactly. So if yeah. the grief like if their collective agreement like at the university says that during a grievance that they're not allowed to say anything, then you know what? That's the legal. You know, definition. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's what they are held to, regardless of who you are, regardless of the issue. I found a piece of this very interesting. When they said the university's willingness to allow suspicions it has created to continue circulating. So um, how did they create the suspicions? The suspicions started with, with the actual accusations and, and probably before. Yeah. Because everybody always knows. They always know, and they're always the open rumors, but nobody says anything because Canada's small. So this, um, the writer, it's a wonderful, it's a long essay, y'all, but it's wonderful. And um, basically the author was saying that, you know, this is how, this is how entitlement informs this position. Yeah. And so for Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, and I, yeah, I'm calling her out, um, th her actions are disgusting. They really are. Her action to promote inaction. So it's the university's responsibility to make sure his reputation's intact? Nope. Because that's basically what they're saying. Nope. And that's an entitlement. And Canada is such a small pond where nobody wants to ruffle anybody's feathers because it, it could mean your career. Because everybody is tiptoeing around these motherfuckers' egos. And to be honest, I, I'm done with it. Like, you know, if we want to change, then somebody has, somebody has to invest something. We all have to invest something. Yeah. Um, keeping in a similar vein, um, you know, I just re-upped my question about when is the me too movement going to happen in canada um and we've talked a few times on the pod here about sexual harassment that's happened on parliament hill and in canadian politics yep um and to date we haven't heard many or really any 
stories of serial harassers. Um, but this week, the Canadian press re- uh, conducted or re- released uh, an anonymous survey about the experiences of with sexual harassment or misconduct on Parliament Hill. So they sent this out to female MPs selected at random. And of those who responded, 58% th- said that they had been subject to one or more forms of sexual misconduct while an MP, including inappropriate comments, sexual harassment, and three who said that they've been victims of sexual assault. Um, the This survey also... Um, Shared found that 55% of respondents said that they believed the global conversation marks a turning point in how these issues are go- will be handled going forward. However, about a quarter of the respondents said that they believed the movement could could prove to be a fleeting one, and that they don't necessarily believe it'll happen in, in Canada or in politics in Canada. Um, and then now, the former interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada... Ronna Ambrose. Is she still the interim? No, former interim. Oh, former. Sorry. I d- oh, God. <laughs> My bad. Yeah, we have Andrew Shear. Maybe I was just hoping that was a bad nightmare. No. Okay. No. Anyway, Ronna Ambrose is chiming in, especially now that she's retired from politics. So she's very relevant. Um, <laughs> she says that, quote, Federal political party leaders must relay a message, particularly to men, that sexual misconduct will not be tolerated. Did she do that as federal party leader? She said she personally encouraged staff to raise concerns directly with her about misconduct, adding she remains worried that things with like party loyalty may be barriers for women on the Hill to, who seek to speak up. Okay. Um, I think... You know, if they don't want it to be a fleeting movement, then fucking put a stake in it. Like, put invest yourself in that. You are an MP. You have agency. You have some sort of power, more power than other women. If you really wanted to make the Me Too movement a thing in Canada, they could do it. They're just... They just don't want to. It's party loyalty. Yeah, they don't want to. Inv- they don't want to invest themselves in that. However, if there is a political point to be made, if there are political points to be made on somebody else t- um, saying something badly to them, oh yeah, then we're going to hear about sexual harassment on Parliament. This is what I hate. Female MPs are like. They're what in Guyana we would call a Dutch axe. They swing both ways. And basically what it means is that on one hand, they want to talk about sexual harassment, They but they don't want to put any skin in the game. They want to have their cake and eat it too. That's right. It And like, I, I think Ronna Ambrose is absolutely right in that party loyalty is such a barrier to this. Well, I think Canada in general has such a hierarchy that um, you see it in every industry. There's there are the people on top because the people the people running the party, who are they? Yeah. Right. Yes. But uh, like, I mean, you even see this. So like, this is my biggest grievance with Canadian politics is that, you know, people are MPs, members of parliament are meant to be representing the views of their constituents 
but we then delegate them as to be our voice. So they vote with the align, they align themselves with the policy position of the prime minister or of the party leader, which may or may not be the best thing for their community. That's my problem too. And that's like, Mm -hmm. and that, and a lot of times it's not a big issue. Like social policy is not, but like when you get into things like the environment, talking about pipelines, Mm -hmm. talking about things like that, I'm sorry, but if you live in an area and you're an MP for an area in which a pipeline is going to be going through, you better, you know, stand up for your community, stand up for your constituents. And if they don't want it, then you say, sorry, I'm not voting for this policy. I'm not voting for this. Yeah, because I I think that assumes that that these policies are sweet rather than individual. Yeah. So, for example... You know, because somebody might say, well, why didn't they vote for the other person then? Well, maybe they're all the other policies they agree with. Just right? because I voted, let's say, for the liberals or for the NDP doesn't mean I agree with every single thing. Exactly. You should be relaying the concerns of your community that you're representing. I believe that... Um, Party loyalty is basically what what chokes the life out of politics in this country. It's and, it's just it's ridiculous at this point. And so that's and like it helps run the House of Commons in an effective manner because like the governing party can pass a lot of legislation, um, which is great. Otherwise, you end up with like the clusterfuck that happens in America. Um, mm hmm. So there are pros and cons, um, but you've got MPs who vote on their principles and like whether or not, whether or not they agree or disagree with the party that they're in. Um, but then they become blackballed. Yeah. Well, you know who's good? The liberal MP from Toronto, I think the beach is Nathaniel Erskine Smith. Well, he was recruited by the liberals. He grew up as a dipper. A dipper? An NDP. That's an, a dipper? N- yeah. Oh, wow. I just learned something. Yeah. Um, so they recruited him as a liberal, but he votes against a lot of the liberal policies. Because he doesn't him. believe in them. Good for but him. But because of that, they don't like him. They think he's trouble. Well, it's very go along to get along. Sorry that he has principles. Yeah. Well, again, it's very go along to get along. And... Which is Canada, to be honest. I mean, it, it really is. Um, and it really does not help Canadians. You yeah. know? It really doesn't. So I, I, I'm i not sure. You know we're not. Listen. <laughs> when Trudeau said he was going to do electoral reform, I said, that's just bullshit. You're not going to dismantle a system you just killed the other guys in. So let's let's just take that down a notch, okay? Okay. <laughs> so we're not going to get any reform. But um, I really do. I really would like to pose the question to, I, I you know, we're not having a Me Too moment movement because there's no leadership and a lot of female MPs have run away from that leadership 
It's like when all the Democratic women senators rallied against Al Franken and the allegations against him to call for his resignation. Yeah. That would never happen that in Canada. That would never happen in Canada. Nobody has the balls. Nope. And at the end of the day, um, sorry, uh, female MPs, but you're part of the problem. Your silence is part of the problem. And if you think that, and you are just waiting for somebody else to carry the mantle with you, for you, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about this out in public? Why are we not, uh, wh- why? Why are we fucking pussyfooting footing around the issue? Yeah. Yeah. So I think people need to. Don't be like, when are we going to have our moment? Are we going to have our moment? Is it going to be important? Is it going to be a big deal? You know, and then I'm... not fucking say anything. You know who I'm going to talk about now? Um, so I'm going to I'm going to call out Catherine McKenna on this one because she could have taken that climate Barbie and actually moved moved the needle somewhere. But she didn't. She used it for her own political points and to build her brand. And that's and that's what female MPs do they they take those moments and use it for themselves to elevate themselves they don't want to bring on other women they don't want to they don't want to create space for other women no what where where that climate barbie thing built her brand what has she done for other women okay I'll wait um Oh my gosh, your face. Yeah. She tweets a lot? Nothing. Not a fucking thing. She tweets a lot about supporting women. Does that count? So does Matt McGorry. You know who else does? Mm. Ivanka Trump. Well, there you go. (laughs) So she's done as much for women as Ivanka Trump. How's that? Great. Cool. <laughs> you know what? I'm never going to get a job in politics. And Fucking I say, at me. yes, at me. Yes. If this is how politics Prove wants me, to I'm be, fucking wrong. Yeah, actually. Yeah. If this if politics wants to recruit women, it has to pretend that these issues it stop, has to stop pretending that these issues aren't part of the everyday. And somebody needs to come out and speak out about it because, I mean, we're doing our part here. I would like to say, you just said, like, this is why you would never be able to make it in politics. Nope. I've always said that if I were to ever make it in politics, I would be the politician who just fucking tells it like it is. Wouldn't get elected. Someone someone was like, well, you're never going to get elected. I'm like, cool, but, like, you always want somebody who's going to tell it like it is until a push comes to shove, then you vote for the same asshole you always vote for, and then you wonder why nothing gets done, why nothing changes. Yeah. But then also now we have Trump, but also I'm not an idiot. See, the other thing, too, is that these parties also do not nominate women as party leaders. Yeah. They don't. The the insiders are all within a, a patriarchal male, white male construct. So even the women within that construct are operating un, within those paradigms. And the real, I, in my opinion, the real the real problem is that Basically, everybody's just out for themselves and they're trying to build their own brand and they're trying to do this. Well, you know what? What, what are you doing? I, and I'm, I'm talking about Catherine McKenna. At least Michelle Rempel like, penned an op-ed. We might not agree with it, but at least she came out and said something. Sorry. 
but she's done more than Catherine McKenna on this issue. Yes. She's willing to be offensive and offend people. That's right. So is Rona Ambrose. Yeah. You know, these are conservative women. What? Where the fuck, liberals? Where are you? Where? Huh? What? What was that? I can't hear you. But they're okay. a feminist government. Right. Right. Okay. Anyway, let's move on to Oprah. In 1964, I was a little girl sitting on the linoleum floor of my mother's house in Milwaukee, watching Anne Bancroft present the Oscar for Best Actor at the 36th Academy Awards. She opened the envelope and said five words that literally made history. The winner is Sidney Poitier. Up to the stage came the most elegant man I had ever seen. I remember his tie was white and of course his skin was black and I'd never seen a black man being celebrated like that. And I have tried many, many, many times to explain what a moment like that means to a little girl, a kid watching from the cheap seats as my mom came through the door, bone tired from cleaning other people's houses. But all I can do is quote and say that the explanation in Sydney's performance in Lilies of the Phil, amen, 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 amen. In 1982, Sidney received the Cecil B. DeMille Award right here at the Golden Globes, and it is not lost on me that at this moment, there are some little girls watching as I become the first black woman to be given the same award. I wanna say that I value the press more than ever before as we try to navigate these complicated times, which brings me to this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. And I'm especially proud and inspired by all the women who have felt strong enough and empowered enough to speak up and share their personal stories. Each of us in this room are celebrated because of the stories that we tell. And this year, we became the story. But it's not just a story affecting the entertainment industry. It's one that transcends any culture, geography, race, religion, politics, or workplace. So I want tonight to express gratitude to all the women who have endured years of abuse and assault because they, like my mother, had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue. They, they, they're the women whose names we'll never know. They are domestic workers and farm workers. They are working in factories and they work in restaurants and they're in academia and engineering and medicine and science. They're part of the world of tech and politics and business. There are athletes in the Olympics and there are soldiers in the military. And there's someone else, Reese Taylor. A name I know and I think you should know too. In 1944, Reese Taylor was a young wife and a mother 
She was just walking home from a church service. She'd attended in Abbeville, Alabama, when she was abducted by six armed white men, raped and left blindfolded by the side of the road, coming home from church. They threatened to kill her if she ever told anyone. But her story was reported to the NAACP where a young worker by the name of Rosa Parks became the lead investigator on her case. And together, they sought justice. But justice wasn't an option in the era of Jim Crow. The men who tried to destroy her were never persecuted. Reese Taylor died 10 days ago, just shy of her 98th birthday. She lived as we all have lived too many years in a culture broken by brutally powerful men. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth to the power of those men. But their time is up. So you just heard uh, a snippet from Oprah's speech at the Golden Globes last week. Excellent speech. It It was was part Papa Pope, in my opinion. Yes. Yes. Yes, I would agree. She does have a very similar delivery to him. Did he, I wonder if he modeled it after her from Scandal. That's, that's a good question. I never even thought about that. That's a really good question. Because he gets the hand movements going, too. Yes, he does. Um, I, obviously, not having a TV, also kind of forgetting what time they were on, didn't watch the Golden Globes in real time, watched the speech the next day. Loved it. Yeah. Um, she. Oh, Oprah. Okay, where do I start with this? Um, I just want to be clear we're not having a discussion about whether or not Oprah should run in 2020, whether or not Oprah should be president, because you know what? One, that's not the conversation to be having right now because it is 2018. And two, way more important things were discussed. Well, I, I do want to say this, though. Um, I found it really, really interesting that, um, you know, some rando tweets, oh, Oprah should be president, and then that's where the conversation went. And I almost think it's deliberate because nobody wants to talk about the real issues in the speech. I... Yes, yes. I... I mean... There were so many things in that speech um, that I thought was just majestic. I thought it was a majestic speech, to be honest. And um, like we talk a lot about how celebrities are generally narcissistic, particularly the more famous they become, the more narcissistic they are. But I feel like Oprah is not like that. Like I'm not an Oprah disciple by any stretch of the imagination, I would never pay to go see her speak. I generally don't think she's a great interviewer because she ta- tends to talk over people she's interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think she's willing to ask difficult questions and like call people out. Really? That mm-hmm. could have changed since she's not doing a talk show anymore. Um, yeah, I think she's very conscious of her brand and she still wants to be viewed as like the BFF. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. So Oprah has a brand. 
Oprah has a Oprah is everybody's life coach now. Yes. Okay. She's everybody's life coach. I will say this though, because of Oprah, we now talk about sexual abuse. Yep. So let's not forget that that would not have happened before Oprah. Yes. Um, because of Oprah, we actually talk about our souls. <laughs> In open conversation. Come yeah. on. Yeah, you know. sure. Okay. And we talk about the actual wholeness of life and we talk about different things. I also think because of Oprah, we talk more about women's issues. Yes. Um, and let's not forget that in the 80s, when she came about, she started doing the Phil Donahue, I'm just talking about yeah. her contemporaries. Um, kind of thing and then in 1992-93 she switched to this more soul food everybody's life coach you know Oprah's favorite things kind of deal and she but she's also the reason we talk a lot about body images right like she, she will be the first to tell you that she has had problems with her weight yep and that we've all witnessed it yeah and that's like her own personal struggle struggle like an acceptance of her body and what it's capable of doing Mm -hmm. but also a product of the industry she's in that's right that's right so um i really and we talk about black people in a certain way i would say due to oprah so I feel like Oprah was kind of like the Cosby show where she would feature like black people who were, I guess, of a certain class, let's yes. say, and really started reshaping that type of image, especially for black women. Yes. I, I really don't think that this can be missed. Now, people have been saying about this, this and I'm just going to talk about the presidential thing a little bit. Um, Democrats always look for somebody to save them, especially now, and they never want to do the work. I don't, I don't Now This is, this is the establishment Democrats, right? So I'm not talking about people with democratic values or beliefs. Yes. Right. Because there are lots of grassroots organization doing that work. Um, so it's no say it's no and i feel like she was recast as this hattie mcdaniel gone with the wind black mammy thing in doing Mm -hmm. so and so people are like save us save us black lady you know and um she's you know everybody's mommy or mammy you know taking care of all the white kids and and you know neglecting herself she said she doesn't want to fucking run well, she she specifically hasn't said anything in fairness. She's said that before. Sure. This is not the first time this has come no. up. However, I'm not saying that she does or doesn't. But what I'm saying is um, for then people to come out and, and be like, oh, she took a picture with Trump or she 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 embraced Weinstein. Who the fuck didn't in those everyone, days? Everyone did. Everyone did. So nice try. Okay, this bring down Oprah thing, I'm just like, eh, I'm not cool with it. I also have seen, heard people disparaging her because she's a billionaire. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did she come from money? No, actually, she was in poverty. 
So you're telling me that she should be um, disparaged and derided for excelling in a system that was meant to keep her down? She is literally the definition of the American dream. Yeah. Okay. Do you know how rare it is for people in America to change socioeconomic classes? Especially now. To that degree? To that degree. Going up one, sure, maybe. And she did it by doing her. Yeah. You know? So I, I like, there's some, the, those are the things that I found really disgusting about the, about the, um, conversation around the conversation. Over. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about the speech, actual speech. Um, yeah. I love the part where she was talking about Sidney Poitier and how, him walking and I, I as she was saying it I was re, I was replaying that video in my head and just how um he just he he wrote this is in like 1963 or whatever mm-hmm. and this is a man who always carried himself with dignity and confidence and for black people in those days it was very very rare and frowned upon yeah. You weren't supposed to look at a white person in their eyes because you were below them. That's how ingrained this is. And so for her, uh, um, a black little girl growing up in poverty in Mississippi, so in the deep south, um, how much that meant for her showed us that representation matters. Yeah. Let's not forget that this is the first black woman ever to receive the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement. Yeah. So, yay, Oprah. And I'm no, I'm no Oprah lover. I mean, I, you know, I, I question her, her, her judgment, judgment and experts. Like, I, I secretly did not like her for years because Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz were on Ugh. there and Susie Orman. And I'm just like. Mm. And then James Fry. Oh, yeah, him too. So I think, you know, that's a, she's a little off on that. Um, But that doesn't mean she has no value or that she should be devalued. Yes. And. um. I also love the part where she brought up Reese Taylor. Yes, towards the end. Yes. So, oh great, I just lost it. Reese Taylor was a black woman who walk, walking home from church was abducted and gang raped by white men as a way to subjugate black people and that had been going on between white men and black women forever and so when we talk about rape culture it's something different for us yeah and i thought the way she weaved that in she basically just said if you think you're facing problems remember this story and this is a story that nobody ever brought up before because you know it's only like you know it's only black people and and you know, white people never like to feel bad. Mm-hmm. So they'll make it all about themselves and say, but we're not racist. We didn't do that. Nobody said you did. <laughs> like, yeah, the structure was imposed upon us. So while black men were being lynched, 
black women were being raped, gang raped, horrifically gang raped. So that is part of the rape culture um, segment or, or piece that's still not talked about. And the fact that she brought that to the Golden Globes, winning a Cecil B. DeMille Award was pretty extraordinary. And then talked about Rosa Parks as a feminist first. Yes. So Rosa Parks, for all, Rosa Parks is not the nice little lady that sat in the back of the bus because her feet were tired. Rosa Parks was a fucking freedom fighter for black women and rape and fought against rape culture. And the thing is about the speech is that she was able to raise these issues in front of an audience, in front of her peers that are predominantly white Mm -hmm. on a night in which they were protesting sexual harassment violence against women and then bring up these issues specifically from a black perspective and then at the end of that tied it back to the theme of the night of the protest that's right it was brilliantly woven the her ability to just like obama to operate in both the white world and the black world and connect them with a bridge is unparalleled. It served me well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it served me well. Yep. Um, I'm not going to lie. Sorry. I don't know what to say, but I will say that the ability to move through different worlds is very much um, undervalued but it pays off dividends. I really do believe that, and when she said, basically, we're coming for you, I was like, why wasn't that the big headline of of the next day? We're coming for you. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, you know, I'm sure she made a lot of men uncomfortable and good. Great fantastic but all we hear about oh is she going to be a good president is she running for president da, 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 da. what are her policy positions what, what are her policy pos- i don't even know if we got that far uh, oh, no no yeah. but i did see a tweet yesterday friday mm-hmm. a full week a full five days after the speech saying oprah's pulling 11 points up over trump i'm sorry it's still fucking 2018 and she's not even they, running. They will drag her. So they will drag fuck her down. Right off. They will drag her down. They will muddy her up. And then it'll be a shell of what Oprah, Oprah please don't don't run. I, I whatever you it's do. It's a very bad idea. But I will say this. You know what the highlight was with Oprah? The Instagram. You did you see that on Twitter? No. Or Instagram? No, it wasn't Instagram, it was on Twitter. Where she, where, where Gail is like, what did Gail say? Or she was helping Gail get ready. I, I sent that to you. Did you send that to me? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. They're talking about Ash Wednesday. Yeah. She's like, she's, she's like, Gail, you better put some lotion on those elbows. Looking a little Ash Wednesday. I was like, oh, that, that was brilliant. You know why? And this is why Oprah, despite her being her billionaire status is still real and not a narcissist. She's still looking out for her best friend and her ashiness. 
Yes. And you know, when your friend looks out for your ashiness, that's a real friend. It's just the same as when you got something in your teeth and your friend tells you. If you talk to people and no one fucking tells you that you have something in your teeth, They're those are assholes. bad friends. They're assholes. Also, I always tell people, by the way, I'm always like, you got looks. And I always tell them discreetly. I'm always like, you know. And because I don't want my friends walking around with something in their teeth. No. 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 And it's the same as if you go shopping with a friend and they try something on and it looks awful and you're like, oh, it looks good. Don't fucking lie. Don't lie. I see that's why you sent us that picture. Don't lie. (laughs) Just don't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. Don't lie. And you don't have to be like, oh, it's like, no, you just you're just like, no, no, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's not you. It's something's wrong with it. Yeah. Because I always bring it back to the clothing. Yeah. Always. Okay. Not, yeah. Well, yeah. It's never about the person. No. It's always the clothes. That's not the right thing. Exactly. Anyway, anyway. moving on. Yeah. So, Erica, you guys, listeners, you may, may remember the dude, James Damore, who got fired from Google for circulating a manifesto he wrote to his colleagues that argued Google's gender pay gap was a result of genetic differences that tend to favor men. Uh, So we talked about this, I think, towards the end of summer, August, early September. But guess what? He's back. He's doing his just fuck shit up thing. He's suing Google and alleging that the company discriminates against politically conservative white men. (laughs) Yes, they're all... So the, the lawsuit reads... Google's management goes to extreme and illegal lengths to encourage hiring managers to take protected categories such as race and or gender into consideration as determinative hiring factors to the detriment of Caucasian and male employees and potential employees at Google. Google employs illegal hiring quotas to fill its desired percentages of women and favored minority candidates and openly shames managers of business units who fail to meet their quotas in the process, openly denigrating male and Caucasian employees as less favored than others. Not only was the numerical presence of women celebrated at Google solely due to their gender, but the presence of Caucasians and males was mocked with boos during company-wide weekly meetings. Damore was surprised by Google's position on blatantly taking gender into consideration during the hiring and promotion processes and in publicly shaming Google business units for failing to achieve numerical gender parity. So Damore also says that he felt forced to attend and participate in diversity training events and that he was threatened and insulted by his coworkers following the publishing of his manifesto. Uh, and Google, in firing him, did not explicitly state a policy or procedure that had been violated. So he's suing them. Sure. So, one, this is dumb. Two, while Google doesn't have, uh, may have these quotas, you know what also does? The federal government. Like, the federal government is saying, oh, they're a thing, like, it's called affirmative action. And as an employer, you support affirmative action. Like, that's literally what it is. It's a federal policy. Mm-hmm. It's not a Google policy. Google's not special in this way. No. So this guy needs to sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. 
They never shut the fuck up. No. Even when they, especially when they know nothing. I will say it is problematic for Google to not have stated a policy or violation in the firing of him. Like that's probably where they might get snagged in this process. Yes. Um, because they need cause. Yes. Um, and he also was on the record saying that I would be happy to go back to Google and I feel like I can teach them a lot. Bitch, please. <laughs> Reverse racism. Yeah. It's as true as reverse racism. Yep. In that it's not. Yes. You know what hap- you know what I bet happened? This this whole story blew up and nobody wanted to touch him. And now he's pissed. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened. Well, he did go on some like conservative shows. So let them hire him. What's the problem? He's too snaggled toothed. Although they do have some snaggled tooth people on those. Is he really? Well, he's not snaggled toothed, but he's not like handsome or conventionally attractive i don't think oh so they don't want his ass either okay maybe some self-reflection oh yeah definitely not um white dudes are whiny eh so whiny and i'm just like if everything if everything doesn't go their way it's like Just because other people have the right to, we have the right to say our piece too. And to, Google has the right to develop their own policies. Yes. This is not, this is not church and state. I mean, this is not like state sanctioned stuff we're talking about, right? Google has a right to make you go through diversity training. Obviously it didn't stick. So it makes me wonder about Google's diversity training. But Mm -hmm. anyway, I digress. It's probably, you know what? It's probably delivered by white people. (laughs) That would not surprise me even a little bit. But white men feel that we are displacing them and that we're like organizing this takedown just because we happen to say that the system unfairly benefits them. And it does. This is not, this is fact. It's not question. So what are we going to do about it? Well, to white men, diversity and inclusion means um basically means their replacement yep and diversity and inclusion mean it's a zero-sum game for them and that's the way they look at it they don't see it as an enlargening they see it as something being taken away from them that they didn't really earn yep so and that's where the fear is that all this stuff that's basically you know trump's supporters is that they always feel that something's being taken away from them and some of us feel that we can enlarge the pie so to speak going back to not going back to but like staying on this like thread of like these are people who vote for trump and like the policies they believe in this is the exact same thing like I don't understand like Trump doesn't want immigration from poor countries, right? 
He wants people to immigrate from rich white countries. But they, but then that would be like a drop down. But <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah. One, because like those rich white countries are probably gen- more socialist and progressive than the U.S. So like, why would they want to do that? Two, a lot of the time when they're going to be doing that at their academics and like the Trump administration doesn't believe in science. So why? And three, like, like they don't, those people they want to bring in, they are the ones who are working higher paying jobs. So they don't want to bring in people at lower level jobs because all of Trump's voters are blue collar. They're lower middle class. So they Mm -hmm. don't want the people they want to bring. They don't want to like encourage people to like aspire to something like they're not. He's not. They're not creating an aspirational culture. Well, I think that, you know, um, especially with the shithole countries comment, um, you know, Ireland was a shithole country, too. Sure. Yep. We were fine with that. So was Italy. Yep. So was Russia. And so, I mean, I, I don't even know. Yeah. Like, so I I really, um, I would say that going back to Google Dude, um, he fucked himself. And he wants to blame everybody else. Yep. Which is basically... <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's like how the conservatives love to say that minorities have themselves to blame. Well, he has himself to blame because you know if he if this Google is this thing with Google didn't even start in the first place, he probably still have a job. That's true. And now nobody wants to touch him. Yeah, like where the cons- well where are the conservatives? Where are his people? Why don't they want to touch him? Why don't they give him a job? Why don't they give him a post? Uh, I don't I don't know. Well, you said he's snaggle too. He's a little Bra. <laughs> you gotta you gotta level up for that shit. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, lazy ass. <laughs> lazy. And now moving on to rent and receipts, and this is where we each bring a topic or a story to share with the other person, and then we just kind of chat about it. Yep. Erica, what do you got? Mark Wahlberg is trash. I get to uh, I get to drag my favorites, like my favorite draggies, and like this this like last two weeks has been a boon. For yeah, this. last week was Justin Timberlake. This week, Mark Wahlberg. I know. We always make time for Taylor Swift. Yes. And Lena Dunham. And Lena Dunham. Who has to apologize again. Yes. Because she's always apologizing. Yes. So what has Mark Wahlberg done this time? I mean, I know what he's done. Okay. So Kevin Spacey was supposed to be in a new Ridley Scott film called All the Money. All the Money in the World. In the World. See, I didn't even care enough to... Okay. Um, <laughs> Apparently, no one saw it. It hasn't done very well in theaters. Oh, it's already out? Yeah, it came out like on just before Christmas. Um, and Nobody saw that. But Christopher Plummer is apparently amazing. He's always amazing. Yes. But... Oh, he's coming into this story, too. Great. Ah! Okay, I'm starting again. So, Ridley Scott... 
uh, made a movie called All the Money. In the world. In the world. <laughs> I, apparently, I've decided to rename this damn stupid name. It's a stupid name. All the money in the world. Okay, I get it. For all the money in the world. But they could have stopped at all the money. See? Done. It would have been It's hash- redundant. It would, yeah. It would be like hashtagable. Like, they need to get this stuff straight. Okay. Um, just because Twitter has 280 characters. Okay. Um, so anyway, they reshot the week of Thanksgiving after a cascade of sexual misconduct allegations were made public against Kevin Spacey. But new information reveals that the reshoot cost $10 million, a fee put up by the producing arm of the project. And in December, Ridley Scott told USA Today that the undertaking was aided by the fact that everyone, but that, quote, everyone did it for nothing. USA Today has since learned that Wahlberg's team actually negotiated a hefty fee which paid the actor $1.5 million for his 10 days of reshoots. Michelle Williams was not told. Michelle Williams reshot for nothing. Well, not nothing. She she reshot for minimum wage. Minimum wage, okay. Well, she re- made roughly like $1,100. Okay, sure. I'm just fact-checking you. I know. That's fine. <laughs> I'm good. Um, Wahlberg and Williams are both represented by the William Morris Agency. Now... If this is where the story stopped, then I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with that agency? That agency got some explaining to do. Oh, but it didn't stop there. Um, Wahlberg refused to approve Christopher Plummer as a replacement for Kevin Spacey unless he was paid over a million dollars for the reshoot. Another Hollywood insider says Wahlberg's lawyer formally vetoed the Oscar winner in a letter to financiers until his demand for additional payment has been met. So this is not, I mean, I mean, this is sleazy at best, but this is not Mark Wahlberg's first offense. No, no, no. A few years ago, Mark Wahlberg petitioned Massachusetts for a pardon of violent racial assaults he he committed as a teenager. When he was Marky Mark? Uh, Probably around then. Yeah, around then, I'm sure. He first came to the attention of the Attorney's Attorney General's office in 1986 when Boston was still under court order to desegregate its public system its public school system, and racial tension was high. On a Sunday afternoon, Jesse Coleman, a 12-year-old African-American boy, was walking home when Wahlberg and his buddies began chasing him, hurling rocks, and yelling racial epithets. When Jesse returned to the beach the next day on a school field trip, Wahlberg, I guess he was walking to the beach, excuse me, Wahlberg was there again, with an even bigger gang hurling rocks and more racial epithets at Jesse's class, injuring two students. Jesus. Oh, but that's not where it ended. 
So he also broke a five-foot pole over the heads of two Vietnamese immigrants. For this, he served 45 days in prison, and I think one of them lost an eye or something like that. What? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's trash. Oh, he's certifiable. Now, in his petition, Wahlberg never acknowledged the racial nature of his crimes. Even his pardon petition described his serial pattern of racist violence as, quote, a single episode that took place while he was, quote, under the influence of alcohol and narcotics, end quote. I have never liked Mark Wahlberg. He always plays a hyper-masculine character as if he's overcompensating for something or, like, trying to convince people that he's very manly. Um, this is true. I just don't have time for him i don't think he's a particularly good actor and while these are shocking stories i'm not surprised no he looks like trash he does he acts like trash yep um and he's gross too yes i remember seeing him on um over the pond graham norton so yes you know the graham norton show Love graham norton. oh my gosh that's hilarious Anyway, he was, I can't remember who, it was a Jessica Beale or there was a, he was on the show with, with a woman and he was just leering and he was gross and sexist and it was just, it was really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. So, um, like getting back to this Michelle Williams thing. Yes. Your thoughts. The way... I understand this whole thing went down is that they called they when they asked everyone to do the reshoots my understanding is they very likely called Michelle Williams first mm-hmm. and been like oh like we want to reshoot this da, da 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 she probably said sure yeah sure you know what I don't want my name associated with this project with this person and to save my reputation to save the movie Da, 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 da. absolutely it's not a big deal it's 10 days of my life i'll reschedule my holiday with my child which is actually what happened thank you for pointing that out and clear my schedule and we'll do this not a big deal then they went to mark Wahlberg and his people and that's when he kind of i think held them over a barrel so what they did is they went to the woman who women have a stereotype of being naturally collaborative, naturally understanding, naturally willing to just do what it takes to get the job done. Yeah. So they were like, cool, you'll agree to do it. Great. We'll go to the more difficult one because they knew that if they went to Mark Wahlberg first and he asked for money or like, did something to them, then they would have to fork over the money for her too. Yes. Because she would be less understanding at that point. So then for whatever reason, Mark Wahlberg was a dick, said I wanted money, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it all shook out. But the problem here, my problem here is with the agents. Yeah. Because one, your talent deserves to get paid. 
Yeah. And two, they should also want to get paid because they get a cut. Yeah. So why are they selling themselves short, first of all, and like from their own selfish standpoint is my question. But to throw a, wrink- a wrinkle in this all. Um, he wanted to get paid for approval for Christopher Plummer. Which is so fucking dumb. Like, that's fucked up. So fucking dumb. Um, given all of the, the negative press that Mark Wahlberg has received over this, um, Mark Wahlberg and his agency give $2 million to the Time's Up uh, uh, defense fund um, due to the outcry. They are donating in the name of Michelle Williams. Oh, for fuck's sake. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I, I, I Mark know. Wahlberg this is donating. is such a dick. He is donating the $1.5 million to the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund in Michelle Williams' name. And their agency, WME, is making a $500,000 donation. You know what? She needs to find new representation. She needs to find new representation. And every woman on William Morris's agency needs to get their needs to start rethinking their relationship. Because guess what? Um, if they're doing it to Michelle Williams, you can only imagine what they're doing with others. Yep. Although Michelle Williams is not a nobody. No, but she's peren- perennially undervalued. She is. She's a fan. She's a brilliant actress. Great. Wonderful. Um, did you see my blue Valentine? Yeah. Oh, just wonderful. Anyway. Um, but this is like, this is exactly what we talk about with women and women doing the labor Yep. and unpaid labor. Yep. I agree that William, the William Morris, Morris agency, um, would need to answer for this. I know that we're not going to get the answers, but every I'm telling you, every woman on their payroll needs to needs to check themselves mm-hmm. and needs to check their relationship with that agency if that's yeah. the way they're going to behave. Yeah, because at the very least, their reputation at least should be stained for this. Yes. Also, I'd be fucking pissed if I was Michelle Williams. When not only did I not get paid, two, I was duped into it. Three, and now they're trying to like make amends by donating money in my name. Like, are they trolling her? Fuck off! It sounds like a troll. Uh, she should just put out a statement and be like, I'm fucking capable of sub- donating my own money. Thank yeah, you very much. Exactly. I don't Go fuck yourself. That's the other thing. It's so paternalistic the way he did it, the way Mark Wahlberg and the agency did it. Like, it's, oh, I'm donating in your name. It's sort of like, I'm taking care of it for you. Nope. Not here for it. What a What a dick. And you know what? He's not even the misogynist of the week. Yeah, not saying something. <laughs> so um, my rental receipt's taking a little bit more of a serious turn. Um, so some criticism recently came out regarding the District of Columbia's relatively new requirement for childcare workers to have college degrees. The rationale is that city officials want to address an academic achievement gap between children from poor and middle-class families that research shows is already evident by the age of 18 months. Um, A central part of that mission is educating a workforce that historically has been paid and treated like babysitters. What the job demands now, or what they're hoping the job will demand, is closer to the work of an elementary or kindergarten teacher. 
Um, and that's according to the research from um, that they're citing. Um, but for many childcare workers that are often hired with little more than a high school diploma, returning to school is difficult, expensive, with questionable reward. So the criticism uh, that I read about this is that there were, I think, four, four reasons why this policy is not great. So the first is that the requirement disproportionately hurts low-income child care workers and individuals seeking to become child care workers. Um, the second is that the requirement reduces the ability of out-of-state child care workers to move to the district for work. Uh, the third is the requirement will raise the cost of daycare in the district, which is concerning because right now the district has exorbitant child care costs. Where, so where is it going? What do you mean? Well, where's, like, where's the breakdown of the cost? Because the child, it's $1,800 a month on average for daycare. Because there's, what? This, this, yeah. Um, so those are the three, the three reasons why the Do critiques of this. <laughs> no, like, it's very expensive. Holy shit. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Per child. Per child. Fuck off. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, according to the Economic Policy Institute, the average annual cost of childcare in the district is $22,631. The most expensive child locale, childcare locale in the country. So childcare costs almost as much as college. The average DC family with a toddler and an an infant would have to spend up to 63.6% of their annual income. Uh, and the cost of living is very high. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So this is like in- insanely prohibitive. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that the mean hourly r- wage of childcare workers is $11.02, um, where the mean annual salary for childcare workers is roughly $23,000. So how can you expect someone earning $23,000 to simultaneously pay for education in order to continue making that much much money because once you start educating people then their salaries increase but at eighteen hundred dollars a month for childcare, it's gonna go through the roof i i find the supply and de- their supply and demand is very out of whack yeah i i find that um this is a very good example of the issues of a wage rate right that um that those who are, say, um, consuming the labor of the wage or of the worker, um, they're paying for it. But on the flip side, if you want to educate these workers, you know, that will raise the cost. Yep. And, you know, for a two year uh, college, tuition is roughly. Six thousand dollars a year, six to seven thousand dollars a year. Okay, so what? Okay, so what? Okay, so the question is, what is the payoff of the college diploma uh, degree? It allows the child care worker to provide a more educational um, component to the to the daycare service 
So instead of just like feeding and changing and napping the child, they're also providing an educational component like counting and alphabet and colors. And you need a degree to do that? Apparently. No, you do not. But, I'm sorry, you don't. But science is saying... You don't. You don't need to fucking educate... No, parents do this all the time. That's what parents do. See, that's the other thing. Like, I... First of all, I don't agree that daycare workers are better if they're educated. They're the, just... The benefit of daycare is socializing your child. Yeah. So... Not to act as... Um... Not to act as an other parent. Exactly. Um, and in my personal view. Well, no. Because, as someone who doesn't have children. Yeah, but at the same time, like, like I'm pretty sure parents want to raise their own kids. Like, I'm pretty sure parents want to impart their own values on their children. Yeah. So for the, for the daycare to impart values on the children, which is already kind of happening, that's one thing. For the daycare to then, like, open up education for the children... That's what school's for. Yeah. So I don't understand the problem they're trying to fix. I don't. I. Where's don't, the problem? It's because they, I guess it seems that the problem is that they're trying to solve is they're trying to lift low to lower middle income children and in, improve their educational outcomes by giving them access to people with quote unquote formal well let's get early them childhood e- education let's get training. them access to health care and prenatal care first okay yes. and maybe they would have better outcomes also, partially okay also i'm sorry you're expecting a low income family to be able to afford for daycare first well of all. that was my question so so in other words you're you they the state is deciding that they and the state i mean government in this yes. sense um is deciding that they want to educate daycare workers who are probably the mother the parents of those mi- lower and middle income or lower yep. income children so they're taking they're forcing the parents to take time away from their children to get educated so that it can benefit an upper class because that seems like what's happening yeah okay i just want to get that straight it's so fucking weird you know what some people should keep their fucking ideas to themselves yeah because this is what happens you 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 put in this extra this extra barrier and then lower income people can't even get jobs yep because they're not college educated. Yep. And if you're going to go to college, why would you go to college for that? If you can afford college, I think you'd aim a little higher. Well, exactly. Um, so who are these people they're trying to educate is my, again, my I question. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. It's. Uh, That's fucked up. Right? That's fucked up. And this is where, and I know some Democrat thought this was a good idea. Because it sounds very much like a Democrat. And, like, for the people, like, I'm not disputing the science behind the fact that. I'm disputing the value. Yes. The marginal value. Because the people who can afford, like, higher-end childcare 
are the people who are already going to be teaching those ch- their children those values anyway. That's right. So, so and the people who so if they want to lift lower income children, okay, fine. You know then what? Put- make make childcare more affordable. That's the pro- that's the solution to the problem. And let's start mixing these fucking neighborhoods. I just said that and I'm like, I don't know if that's I'm I'm like I I don't know. <laughs> I stopped for a second. Because because I feel like I'm just I feel like I'm just um um supporting like school bus programs and I don't. You know what I mean? Back in the days when they were trying yeah. to desegregate schools. Well, but there're too many people growing up in their own ecosystem. Yes, I 100% agree with that. The challenge becomes how how do you do it in a way that keeps the original residents around and how do you prevent extreme gentrification happening from well that that was the other thing that's why i stopped because i i was like i was like there's a lot in that statement and i don't think that i support the implication all those implications that i'm making yeah because like our house in our apartment in dc is like a stone's throw away from howard university which is an hbcu Mm -hmm. historically black college university and it used to be a very black neighborhood. And it still is a very black neighborhood. Like, it, there's a lot of black people in the neighborhood. But it's... Gentrifying. Extremely gentrified. I've heard of this, yeah. It is... Like, rent is prohibitive. Like yeah. I, so it's pushing all those people further out. Yep. But, like, eventually, white people are going to be gentrifying those other areas, too, once they decide that that's good enough for them to live there. So, basically, white people ruin everything. <laughs> I And, like... I I struggle with gentrification because like I like the things that gentrification brings, but it makes I me know. feel guilty. It does it does bring really good coffee, good coffee, good donuts, good donuts. I know nice restaurants. And yeah, stuff. like I like those things, but I feel guilty about it. And I it's trying to figure out how you mix it all together. Well, exactly. And how do you? I think I think um, economically mixed neighborhoods are good for everybody. Yes, but. They just don't stay that you way. Need, but you need things like rent control. Well, you need at least... Well, I I hate rent control. And the reason is, is because um, why would you maintain a property that you can't gain rent? Well, you know I, what I mean? Yes, but like some of them like in a but, rental property, for example. But yeah, like if there is a subsidy program or something like that, I would... I would put those and not in the form. I have an idea. You don't build cooperative housing. You give people. Um, oh, my God. This is going to sound fucking Republican. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But this is it. I don't think that building social housing is the answer. I would rather people be able to live in their own like in in housing but have it subsidized in some way. So, for example, housing that exists in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. But have that subsidized instead of buying, instead of creating this social housing, which comes with a lot of social problems or creates a lot of social problems. Yes. Um, I know that sounds very... No, but you also have, like, what they do is, like, mixed... 
um, mixed income housing. Right. You know? We have the lower income housing. Or co-ops. Like you have low income housing yeah. in the buildings where it's like higher income. You just don't have the like million dollar penthouses. Yeah. But that's like an example of like kind of a hybrid of what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a hybrid of some sort where you're not making low income housing for people. Yes. Because that, as we've seen over the last generation, destroys a lot of of social ties and family ties mm-hmm. and and brings in the issues of poverty and um and being so congested and so close and like yeah yeah we, yeah. Really, we really took this off the rails well we but it was good yeah it was i liked good. it Same. Into it yeah um so finally our misogynist of the week if you watch the Golden Globes, I I love this. I love how my faves are getting dragged. Who is it, Erica? James Franco. Dun dun dun. Who I always thought was trash. I always thought he was greasy, kind of boogery trash. Boogery? Yeah, like like he's kind of like he's kind of like that booger that you don't need to scrape off, but. <laughs> You know, life would be better if you did. <laughs> I feel like he kind of looks. He looks. He always looks hungover. He, he always, does always look hungover. He always looks like he needs. He's like two days past his last shower. Yes. So and he looks like he has bad breath. Oh, he definitely is a halitosis. <laughs> yeah. So um. Kind of right around the moment James Franco hit the red carpet at the Golden Globes, and especially after he won the award for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical for The Disaster Artist, the the hate kind of started. And uh, earlier this week, the LA Times reported that five women are accusing James Franco of inappropriate and or sexually exploitative behavior. You don't say. Um, However, the criticisms... Yeah, so when he hit the red, the criticism started when he hit the red carpet wearing a Time's Up pin. And somebody said, hell the fuck no. Yes. So the allegations against Franco were to have taken place when he owned his own acting school, which I didn't know was a thing, called Studio 4. One of the things that made Studio 4 different from other acting schools was its ability to funnel promising talent into the actor's own projects, which was promised by Franco himself. Quote, they would tell us that similar parts in their projects or smaller parts in their projects were being held exclusively for students. Often they were opportunities for extra work or parts that require nudity, one woman said. And because, you know, this woman who said that didn't have an agent at the time, she figured that this would be her one chance to make it. Um, which is, you know, the obvious thing in most instances of sexual harassment or sexual abuse. Um, So once her and some classmates posted or uploaded their audition tapes, they never heard back. And these allegations just go on and on and on about how one time during a sex scene, they were simulate. He was simulating oral sex on uh, an actress and like removed the bit, like the little plastic barrier 
on her body. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was gross. The Golden Globes really fucked up, didn't they? With Ryan Seacrest Fuck. and James Franco, they really didn't get their shit together. It's not great. No, they fucked up. Not great. Um. So, yeah, but like... These James Franco things have been kind of going around for a while. There was that time a few years ago where he was scamming on some girl on the internet. Instagram, was it? This 17-year-old on Instagram, he tried to bait. I don't. Was it she direct messaged him or he direct messaged her first? Well, I'm not sure who direct messaged whom. What I do know is that there were screenshots of his um i guess they were it looks like a text yeah they were text no it looks like it bloody looks like a twitter dm anyway um all i know is that it says he says do you have a boyfriend and she says nearly 18 my mom and and not if you're around okay so she's saying she's 18 and if you like he's like do you have a boyfriend she's like not if you're around he said when's your birthday where are you staying what's your phone number can i see you oh my god this is like next level thirsty oh my god like i would never text a guy back if he texted me that many times like asking like very kind of creepy questions let alone a celebrity which who can like pretty much bang whoever he wants and he's like thirsting at me what a turnoff. I'm, I was going to make a very, very graphic statement. I'm not going to. Oh. You're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. After the booger thing, you're not going to? You don't. Okay. Okay. So he tried to arrange a hotel, a hotel hookup. Oh, it was a DM on Instagram. Yeah. He tried to arrange a hotel hookup with a 17-year-old. Ew. Knowing that she wasn't seven, 18. But, like, even but if she was 18. When he was 35. Exactly. Even if she was 18, he's it's still, still 35. Creepy. Yeah. Like, it's not hard. All you do is look at a picture of someone and be like, oh, she looks really young. I should check to see if she's, like, 25. Because jailbait. At best. And then it's, like... <sighs> I'm not saying that like large age gaps are gross, but when someone's a teenager, mm, 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 mm. if you're an adult, you can make your own decision. But a teenager is too impressionable. Anyway, he's just taking advantage of those power that those power imbalances, and it's disgusting. And what's this Ali Sheedy part? Is it's it th- unclear. Is it the Ali Sheedy? Yes. Breakfast Shut Club. Shut the fuck up. Yep. Okay. Because what it says here in the article is that in a series of tweets, apparently I need to start following her. In a series of tweets, which have since been deleted, Ali Sheedy, was, who was once directed by Franco Off-Broadway, wrote, quote, James just won. Please never ask me why I left the film's TV business. Wow. So he appeared on Colbert on, I guess, January 10th on The Late Show. And um, Colbert asked him about these allegations. Mm -hmm. And he said, first of all, I have no idea what I did to Ali Sheedy. 
I directed her in a play off Broadway. I had nothing but a great time with her. A total respect for her. Ugh. He sounds like he sounds like a predator already. He sounds like every predator ever. The others look in my life. I pride myself on taking responsibilities for the things that I've done. I have to do that to maintain my well-being. And so, and he goes on, and there was a there's there's a part where he says, "Wait, do we have a clip?" Yes. Okay. Here's the clip. <laughs> okay. First of all, I don't. I have no idea what I did to Ali Sheedy. I directed her in a, a play off Broadway. I had nothing but a great time with her. Uh, 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 total respect for her. I had no. I have no idea why she was upset. She took the tweet down. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't speak for her. I don't know. Um, the others look. In my life, I I pride myself on taking responsibility for things that I've done. I have to do that to maintain my uh, well-being. Uh, I do it. Whenever I know that that there's something wrong or needs to be changed, I make it a point to do it. The things that I heard that were on Twitter um, are not accurate, um, but I completely support people coming out and being able to have a voice because they didn't have a voice for so long. So I don't want to. I can't. I I can't. The way I live my life, I can't live if if there's restitution to be made. I will. I will make it. Um, so if I've done something wrong, I, I will fix it. I, I have to. Um, like, okay. Um, if I've done something wrong, I'll fix it. But if? If. It's we, all, know, we know you did. It's always like, oh, well, I'm sorry that you took offense to that. I'm sorry you didn't understand what, you were, what I was doing. I don't understand what I did to her to make her react this way. Hence the hysterical woman trope. I really like that we've come full circle here. I know. We're like over speech. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, James Franco. Misogynist of the week. Well, that about does it. Yep. Um, As always, we would like to thank Media Style for letting us use their space. Thank you, Media Style. Media Style is a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa. They are a social enterprise making Canada a better place. So don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy. You can follow us on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod. And on Facebook, it's Bad and B Podcast. And don't forget to email us. Uh, send us your content ideas. Send us uh, comments. Send us... Any, any, anything you want. Maybe invite us to an event. Maybe we'll go. I don't know. Suggestions for topics. Yeah. Just send, just, send just us something. Yeah. Badandbepod at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, we have our Patreon, remember? Patreon.com slash badandbitchy. And we will be having our co-host, audi- well, we just recorded our co-host auditions with our applicants. And you guys get to vote for who becomes the next co-host of Bad and Bitchy. But if you want to vote, you have to become a patron. That's right. And we are very, very kind. And we set up a whole just voting patron. That's right. 
So all you have to do is pledge a dollar and you get the ability to vote for the next Bad and Bitchy, pod- ho- Bad and Bitchy podcast host. Awesome. So Bad and Bitchy dot, or patreon.com slash Bad and Bitchy. Oh, and Erica, mm-hmm. we have a new website coming soon. I'm very excited. Yes, we do. But uh, stay tuned for that too. Bye. 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 Bye.